0: Hey there, dudes and dudettes, and welcome to Extreme Movie Reviews, where the takes are as extreme as literally any product you could have bought in the 90s. It's totally time to set your Tamagotchis down, pick up your pogs off of the floor, sit back and relax for a radical time with your host, Steve. Hey, what's up, counselors? Last year, we began my series review of Friday the 13th with my ranking of the entire franchise, followed by a review of both my favorite, Part 6, and my least favorite, Part 7, films in the franchise. This year, I'm going to start where it all began, with 1980's Friday the 13th.
1: Oh hi. What are you doing on this mess? One. <laughs> See it once, but that will be enough. Friday, the 13th.
0: I'm going to go in chronological order over the coming years, and once finished up, I will revisit my franchise rankings and adjust as needed. So, like, do you recommend the movie? Friday the 13th is a horror, slasher, mystery film from the year 1980. It's rated R for violence, some brief nudity, and mild drug use. For the first time ever, I'm definitely surprised by what commonsensemedia.com says. They are the source that I use to give you guys advice, I guess, on how old uh, the parents and the kids suggest that you should be prior to watching a movie. Both parents and kids said 13+. I think a TV-14 rating is closer to my thoughts than PG-13. I will be speaking of the notable folks involved in this movie throughout the entirety of my review, so for now, I will just focus on one bit of interesting information about the director, Sean S. Cunningham. Sean only ever cared about making money in film as he correctly states that that is how you get the green light for your next project. If you're not making a studio money, you're not going to have a job. For better or worse, that has been his theology that has driven his career decisions. His first film he shot was in 1970. It was a porno, and he did it solely because of the boom in the porn industry at the time. A little bit later in his career, he attempted to capitalize on the success of the movie Bad News Bears with two children's movies, and then came Friday the 13th to capitalize on the success of Halloween. Now for the recommendation portion. If you and I were to run into each other at a blockbuster and you picked up the VHS tape to Friday the 13th, asking me if you should rent it, I would start by simply asking, are you into the Friday the 13th franchise? Or are you into slasher flicks? If you said yes, I would say, then you've seen it already, right? You tell me, no, no, I haven't. That's why I asked you the question, you dummy. Followed up with the question, what would you rate it out of five stars? I would waffle a bit and say probably around a 2.8 out of five. So do I recommend it? Definitely, if you are into the horror genre, especially classic horror movies or the Friday the 13th franchise specifically. But beyond that, I think there are a lot of better movies that you could watch, even if you're into any of those specifics. In fewer words, there are better movies that should be higher on your list. It is not a masterpiece or even a must-see movie. I give it a very soft recommendation, and I would not suggest seeking it out and or paying for it. Keep it on that mental list of yours for a day when you see it on a streaming service or on television. And then if the mood strikes, give it a watch and try to forget everything that you know about Friday the 13th. What do you think the ratings look like? It's been a moment since my last longer form review, so as a reminder... I will be giving you a little explanation as to the reasoning behind these following guesses, and I will be guessing what the Rotten Tomatoes and the IMDb scores are for Friday the 13th. Rotten Tomatoes scores are a measure of what percent of, separately, the audience and the critics liked the movie. It's basically a thumbs up or a thumbs down. First, I'll guess what percentage of the audience, I think, liked Friday the 13th. As always with older films, I'm going to guess a bit lower than my initial conclusion. My simple thoughts would be that I am looking for a balance between the amount of people who will like the film simply due to their love of the franchise, those who truly would enjoy this movie, and the fact that I think the average modern general audience member would probably find this movie to be lackluster for the genre and or poor or boring. There's a legacy here, so my gut wants to go into the high 70 percentage range, so I'm going to guess that 67% of the audience gave this movie a fresh rating, aka a thumbs up. With over 100,000 ratings, the actual Rotten Tomatoes audience score is an even 60%. I went high, but 60% is not really surprising to me either. In case you're a new listener, I'll clue you in that I am guessing all of these scores without knowledge of, for instance, whatever I just said the Rotten Tomatoes audience score was. Obviously now I know that I'm recording, but I didn't. So now I'm guessing what the Rotten Tomatoes critics score is. Horror movies in general are going to be lower. The slasher genre probably receives like the second most amount of negative bias. And going back to when this movie was released, these types of movies really were not always looked upon in the best of light from critics. Once again, though, there is that legacy. And as you'll later hear me talk about, I think this movie improves when being looked at under a critical lens. Reluctantly, I'm going to go with a straight up 50% approval rating from my guests. That is counterintuitive to my own experience, guessing lower than the audience score. With 55 reviews from the critics, the actual Rotten Tomatoes critics score is 64%. An interesting little tidbit I noticed is that this movie received an average rating of a 5.9 out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics, which, if you extrapolate the 3.5 out of 5 average audience rating, becoming a 7 out of 10, According to the Rotten Tomatoes ratings, the critics actually gave it a lower score, 5.9 compared to a 7, even though they also gave it a bigger thumbs up overall. The last score I will look at is from a different website, IMDb. IMDb's scores are on a 10 point scale, and in comparison to the Rotten Tomatoes scores, it gives you an idea of how good everyone feels that the movie is. It's entirely possible to give a movie a 2 out of 10 IMDb, but also you know give it a thumbs up. 9s and 10s tend to really beef up the scores in my experience, but I kind of struggled to believe that a large amount of people would fairly give this movie that high of a rating. And on the other side of the scale, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a rather high percentage of 1s and 2s. So I'm going to guess a 5.7 out of 10. And with over 120,000 ratings, the official IMDb score is a 6.4 out of 10. Here's where I went wrong. Ones and twos received the lowest amount of ratings, with only 3% of people giving the movie either of those scores combined. And there was also a 3% increase from the 5% of people who gave it a 9 to a total of 8% of people who gave it a 10. Which is probably that legacy factor that I just didn't give it enough credit for here. Over one quarter of the audience gave it a 7 To no one's surprise for this movie, as the age of the viewers skewed younger, the rating went down actually a full eight-tenths of a point lower for the youngest group in women in comparison to the oldest age group in women. Looking at all of that combined, it seems to be a pretty steady, soft recommend across the board. So a quick recap, the Rotten Tomatoes audience gave Friday the 13th a 60% positive rating, the critics gave it a 64% positive rating, And the IMDb score was a 6.4 out of 10. Do you think the fans and the critics gave it some props reviews or what? Now that we have a general idea of my thoughts and the internet's thoughts as a collective, let's look at some of the specific reviews. First, let's take a look at the audience reviews, beginning with the good. Thomas T. is going to kick it off with a well-written review. Friday the 13th was a low-budget slasher movie which most likely never believed how popular this horror franchise would become, exclamation point. It is a movie which has a simple plot, doesn't contain too many on-screen kills, and to top it off, has a good twist at the end which sets a direction for the rest of the franchise that follows. Although not quite brilliant, it creates a formula and certain aspects which have changed horror cinema forever. Thomas echoes some of my sentiments and says a few things that I did not, but that I agree with. He gave it a 3.5 out of 5. And Daniel S. gave it a 4.5 out of 5, and he says, Oh man, I can be crazy. Um, let's just move on to some negative reviews then. The very next review, actually, so that was an easy find for me, comes to us from the user Stephen E., who gave it 1.5 out of 5, and actually had a fair, albeit quick, review that is hard to argue against. Stephen said, the most flat of the so-called classic horror movies, but the twist at the end was pretty good. Alright, let's finish up the audience reviews with Luke J's review, which is a bit of a different take than you will be hearing from me, but I definitely understand it, and I think that it's a valid take, especially for younger audience members. Luke gave it 2.5 stars out of 5, and he said, Very generic cookie-cutter slasher movie that blatantly rips off the much superior Halloween 1978. This was one of the firsts in a string of low-budget, low-quality popcorn slasher movies. The ending twist is laughably corny, with the final showdown turning into unintentional comedy. If you give it a go, I recommend watching for the comedy value with friends and not while sober. I'm going to personally add that you could also do that sober, there's enough that you can laugh at without being under the influence. Now,
1: as I was saying, uh, drugs are bad. You shouldn't do drugs. Uh, if you do them, you're bad. Because drugs are bad. Okay?
0: Now, let's check out some of the critics' reviews. Kicking things off with a rather neutral review is Rob Guns, Gunslaves, Gunslaves of eFilmCritic.com, who gave it a 3 out of 5 and said, It hasn't aged well. Its non-style renders it pretty sedate these days. I say, fair. Let's see what my boy Ken Hank of Mountain Express said. It started it all, but it's not really a part of the series being more of a whodunit, even if by now we all know who it was. Ken, I will always appreciate you. Now I know that I've been spelling who done it incorrectly the entire time that I wrote my walkthrough and ratings. That mere fact should tell you that I agree with him. Oh, and I almost forgot. Ken gave it a three out of five. I have two more positive ones that I would like to cover. No commentary on them. Just know that I agree with each of them. First is going to be from James Kendrick of Q Network Film Desk, who gave it a 3 out of 4, and said, A campfire boogeyman story designed to do little more than build tension and deliver a few well-timed shocks, which it does with precision and even a bit of artistry. And the other is from Peter Canavis of Groucho Reviews, who gave it a a 2.5 out of 4, and said, Cheap and virtually plotless? Friday the 13th keeps cycling back to those low expectations as a scary campfire tale it gets the job done. Lastly, let's take a look at a couple of negative reviews from the critics. First up is Brian Webster of Apollo Guide who gave it a 64 out of 100 and said, how do you sum up a movie that's really quite awful yet helped define a filmmaking era? Brian, I felt like that coming into my review, but as you all will see, I actually came out with a greater understanding of what this movie does well. And from Kim Newman of Empire Magazine, Kim gave it a 2 out of 5 and said, It may be one of the most famous, but it's certainly not an original on which others are based. Well, I must wholeheartedly disagree. I'll try to keep this concise. Yes, it's not original, however, it was most definitely a movie of which many, many others were based on. In fact, it's the very simple and purposeful skeletal format that is this movie that brought us a crapload of shitty horror, one that is still used to this day. Most every tired and overused horror trope funnels through this movie. I used the word skeletal very purposefully here because this movie is the bare bones of the greats from before it. The writer doesn't hide that fact. The writer broke down the simple structural aspects of Halloween 1978 and then himself and Sean Cunningham took as few ligaments, tendons, and muscles that they could possibly add to that skeleton in order to allow it to stand on its own, eliminating any and all of the fat that they could. Halloween itself is a simplified derivative of the classics from John Carpenter's childhood. Born in 1948, I believe his influences go all the way back into the 40s, but more so movies from the 50s and into the 60s like The Thing from Another World and Psycho. John also simplified some things and brought what he could into this new modern world of the time. He brought to the forefront a genre that not too long later, dominated the 80s in large part because of Friday the 13th. As my metaphor goes, Sean S. Cunningham and crew took all of what worked, specifically in Halloween, down to the barest of bones, and they said, screw the plot, screw the storyline, screw character development. We will give people general archetypes that they, at least the younger audiences of the time, the filmmaker's target audience, could identify with. And they marketed the hell out of this movie to an audience that was primed and ready for the schlock that they were going to be serving up. Is it a formula that should have been mimicked a million times over? No. But it's easy and inexpensive to imitate. Sometimes someone goes to plant some carrots in their garden, but instead, they strike oil. Hey dude, sorry it's me again. I was just wondering, could you tell me more about the movie? The movie starts off with crickets in the soundtrack, and a shot of a dark cabin at Camp Crystal Lake in the year 1958. We see a small group singing a song around an indoor campfire. We pull away and we cut to a POV shot as the door to one of the cabins is opened. We peep around a bit. We hear the now famous for the first time as it softly makes its way into the soundtrack. There are five people sleeping on their cots, mostly they are children. But we walk past all of them as we make our way to the back of the cabin and we go back to the group of counselors as they finish up singing this song. The river of Jordan is deep and wide. Hallelujah.
2: Milk and honey on the other side.
1: Hallelujah.
0: Two of the counselors separate from the group. They kiss and they move to a more private location. We follow them a little bit.
3: You said we were special. I
0: meant everything. And then we return to a point of view shot, approaching those counselors. <laughs> orchestral music reaches a soft sting, <laughs> and the counselors are not startled by the individual behind the camera. Uh,
2: we weren't doing anything. We were just messing up- around. <laughs>
0: And that's a very subtle clue for the audience, and that's a plus for the writing. Them counselors is gone. We cut to a black screen as the title of the movie gets plastered in big white letters. The opening credits roll on a stark black screen before we begin our adventure. On a sunny day in a small town on Friday, June 13th. Quote, unquote, in the present, which would have been 1980 when this movie was released, which really did have a Friday the 13th on June 13th of 1980. I looked it up. That is until episode four of this franchise was released, because in that movie, it's shown that the events of this movie took place on June 13th of 1979, which was a Wednesday thus some would say that both this movie and part four are wrong and actually this movie occurred on friday july 13th yeah um that is this franchise's continuity in a bottle right there it's shot in the first couple seconds of the first movie yeah not until years later but probably 1984 but um yeah Let's get back to the movie. A young lady is walking down the street on this nice day. She gives a stray dog a nice little pet on the head, and she asks... Hey, you speak
1: English? How far is it to Camp Crystal Lake? That far, huh? Okie
0: dokie. So a dog is the first bearer of bad news, or harbinger, in this franchise. Next, she walks into the local diner and asks the same question because she was not happy with the dog's response. Everyone turns, and they give her a hard stare. Before she gets a response and one of the patrons states, Camp Blood? They're opening that place again? This young lady is Annie. She seems excited for her new gig as they approach our second bearer of bad news, the one that everyone actually recognizes and will be mimicked many a times in this franchise and others.
2: All the girls up there gonna look as good as you? Not enough.
1: You're Camp Blood, ain't ya? You'll
2: never come back again. It's got a death curse.
0: That's Ralph.
2: He's a real prophet of doom, ain't he? Come on, climb up, miss.
0: The kind gentleman who offers Annie a ride to Camp Crystal Lake gives her a boost up to his truck while getting a grasp of that ass. This movie is spending a lot of effort to make sure that we understand that Camp Crystal Lake is bad news. It's got a death curse! As her driver tells her that she should quit this counselor gig before even beginning. Adding a few brief pieces of information along the way. Like when they tried to reopen the camp in 1962 and that they couldn't because the water was bad. Or like how this Steve guy has spent a lot of money, time, and effort getting the camp ready for its reopening this very summer. 1980. Or 79. June. Maybe July. Writing and acting gets a negative through this scene. I get the feeling that they, the storytellers of this movie, are trying to set this guy, the one giving her a ride, up as a possible suspect in the movie. We hardly know that this is going to be a who done it type story yet, and he's also quite nice, but suspect number one is the pervy, but also kind oil truck driver guy. As if we needed one more bad omen, suspect number one drops her off for her final little walk to camp directly in front of a cemetery. Quickly, we are introduced to a red truck that is barreling down the road with this banjo music playing. They're jamming, and there are three more counselors aboard. We are at about the 13-minute mark, and half of the dialogue so far has been about people wondering if all of the female counselors will be sexy. All the girls up there going to look as good as you. They pull up to Crystal Lake as a man is chopping some wood, and he steve calls for alice another one of the counselors who's obviously been here for a moment already through the following dialogue we know there are a few others like her who have already been at camp for you know more than just today helping steve to get everything set up for the children alice draws well she's drawn the wood chopper steve in her little book of drawings and he is looking at the drawing and there's some dialogue and so we are clued into some sort of short-term history and chemistry between alice and steve but she is not sure about things with him we are made aware that someone is in the woods spying on everyone as we see another pov shot of alice as she is running towards a counselor who we have not met yet and his name is bill A little bit later, Steve leaves camp in what pretty clearly is a jeep, but they don't show the entire vehicle. He should be back sometime after lunch, and we see all six of our counselors gathered together as they say goodbye, which would be all the counselors except for Annie. Annie has yet to arrive.
1: All right.
2: I'll be back sometime after lunch. It's supposed to rain like hell, so get as much done as possible. I don't want to get too far behind.
3: that downtown they call this place Camp blood
0: Next you're gonna tell us there are poisonous snakes
3: in the remember
0: that snake comment We return to Annie as she is trying to hitchhike and she hops into a jeep which has a walkie-talkie connected to it. The jeep very much appears like it could be Steve's Jeep. We don't see or hear the driver. It's a point-of-view shot as she hops right on in, and shortly later, they drive right past the sign for Camp Crystal Lake.
1: Hey, wasn't that the road up for Camp Crystal Lake back
3: there?
0: Suspect number two?
3: Steve. Uh, I think we better stop.
0: I believe she screwed up. I'm I'm pretty sure that her line was supposed to be one of either, quote-unquote, isn't... Is that the road up to Camp Crystal Lake? Or isn't that the road for Camp Crystal Lake? Not both. And he jumps out of the vehicle. to the throat, we know that the kitchen help will not be arriving at camp. Jump cut, and we are back at camp as the counselors are letting loose while they get the dock put together. The acting is still pretty poor overall, but a scene like this does help build some chemistry between the group for us. Not much, though, because it's pretty quick. The movie is more focused on just keeping up this high level of tension at all times. <laughs>
2: Hold. 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 Something's wrong with Ned.
0: For example, Ned fake drowns and I can't tell if it's his poor acting that makes it so obvious or if his character is a bad actor. Oh, Maybe he's actually a really good actor. I assume it's actually bad acting, since none of the counselors suspected anything.
2: Oh, it's
0: we see they are still being spied on. In case we forgot from just one minute ago, we are back at camp, and... Meg! I'm gonna slither those, meg. Ned is in the middle of Weeds, just hacking away with a machete for no apparent reason.
2: What are you doing? With a snake in here. Why are we in here? Whoa, yeah. don't tell me now.
0: The rest of the crew arrives.
2: Kill it. You heard
0: the light. You can't get it till it comes out. But
1: call him.
0: How do you call a snake?
2: A snake? <laughs>
0: Kevin Bacon is pure chaos and he jumps up shouting,
2: i flush you!
0: And he jumps over everyone and on top of the bed. i flush you! Fucking bacon. It's chaos in the cabin, and the bit about this is in the interesting vax portion should flesh out just why this scene has the best acting in the entire movie. At least up until this point. A police officer shows up to camp and there is a portion of this movie that wouldn't make it into movies this day and age. Officer, is there anything we can do to help?
2: We'd be glad to help out.
0: Looking for somebody. And who's that? A guy named Ralph. Town crazy. But... Oh, there's
1: no crazy people around here,
0: right? <laughs> different time. I told
1: you to sit on it, Tonto.
0: Suspect number three, the town crazy. Ralph. Without any kitchen help, Alice appears to be getting ready to prepare a meal for everyone.
1: Jesus Christ!
2: I'm the messenger of God.
0: What the fuck, Ralph? You nearly gave me a heart attack.
1: You're doomed if you stay here. This place is cursed. Cursed and a death curse.
2: Who are you? What do you want?
1: God sent me. Get out of here, man. I got to warn you. You're doomed to stay. Go. Go.
0: It's clear that the movie knows that it's been keeping a really high level of tension this entire time.
2: I think we just met Ralph. God, what's next?
0: Honestly, that is kind of comforting to know that it's fully intentional. So I'm going to give writing some points back. We cut forward in time, and dinner is being served. We get some more chemistry amongst everyone, at least once again, just for a short moment. Cut forward in time again. Ned's off on his own. Maybe Ned's a little bit lonely. We heard the sounds of a storm rolling in off in the distance. Bacon and his girl... Marcy have a bit of a moment as Marcy explains this dream of hers in a short monologue.
3: It's just a dream. Yeah, I call it my show. <laughs> hey, hey, this is no dream. Come on, Maria, it's
0: so <laughs> Points for acting. I think her delivery was definitely one of the better points up to this point in the movie. We should be clear of the setup at this point, as we are 36 minutes into a 90-minute movie. So, as those two head in, let's take a quick head count. We have three suspects, but I think we can strongly suspect that the pervy but kind driver was not the one who killed Annie, which leaves camp owner Steve and Ralph as our primary suspects. We have one confirmed dead, that would be Annie. And then we've got two who are currently MIA, and that is Steve, seemingly, because he did not return after lunch, and I mean, it's pretty late. And then Ned, who followed someone who was unrecognizable into a cabin just a short bit ago, which leaves us with five still alive. That would be Brenda, Alice, Bacon, Marcy, and Bill. Bacon and Marcy
1: Him and her got it on Why?
0: Brenda, Alice, and Bill are just hanging
2: I know what we can do We're going to play Monopoly I hate Monopoly Not the way I play it, you know (coughs) What? We're going to play strip
1: Monopoly
0: Well, damn, Brenda Now we're talking
1: It's easy, instead of paying rent, you pay clothes Bill can be banker, unless of course he's chicken.
2: <laughs> uh, well heaven help you if you land in one of my hotels.
0: Nice line, Bill. <sighs> oh, hey Ned. Nice necklace. Oh, that's a slash throat is no longer M.I.A. He's on the top bunk. Bacon settles in for a post-pump nap. Ned loses a boot. Bacon takes a spear through the back of his neck, through his esophagus, and out the front of his throat. Marcy's trying not to get wet again. While she runs through the rain to the bathrooms... Oh, no. Not her too. Jack?
2: Jack?
0: Was she even going to the bathroom? She just stands up and walks out of the stall, which is followed by one of the weirder moments in this movie as Marcy looks in the mirror while washing her hands and does this little diddly. When I looked into that
1: mirror, I knew I'd always be ugly.
2: I said, Lizzie, you'll
0: always be (laughs) playing. I don't even think she's high. What is happening? Must be my
1: imagination.
0: The silhouette of an ax appears behind her. (gasps) To the face. All that's left are our three plane strip Monopoly. What?
2: <laughs> well, what can I say? Not so much. Can I call it home?
0: Sorry, Bill, but what the hell is that line again?
2: Can I call it home? Oh! oh. oh no! Wait a minute! Oh! Get, oh the yeah. Get, Get the money! Oh! Oh going like crazy out there. Oh, I think I left the
0: windows in my cabin open. No, don't go alone, Brenda. Hard cut to the diner. Steve, is there anything else you want? No, no, no
2: thanks,
0: Andy. I'm fine. The fuck are you doing, Steve? You said you'd be back a little after lunchtime. It's now nighttime. He gets all bundled up in his big-ass yellow poncho. There's a tank, Steve. Oh, you keep it,
1: Sandy. Thank you. Sure. Drive careful.
3: I will. Good night.
0: Yeah, you know what? I don't think a murderer would tip so well. Although, for the first time, just a little bit later, we do get to see the color of Steve's Jeep, and it matches the one that Annie jumped into, which definitely was our killer. None of our three suspects are cleared from the suspect list, but fucking Ralph is still at the top of the list. We jump back to Camp Crystal Lake as Brenda now enters the bathroom. She brushes her teeth, and she leaves. Steve's having car issues, and he's now pulled off to the side of the road, but thankfully, an officer of the law arrives on the scene and offers him a lift back to camp. Speaking of back to camp... We get another POV shot of someone creeping on Brenda from outside of her window. There's a noise coming from outside. It sounds like it's maybe a cat. Or maybe it's like a woman saying, help me. It's far off in the distance. okay yeah it's definitely a woman shouting for help from the distance who the hell could it be though brenda and alice are the last two women so alice brenda makes her way to the archery range hey slight callback to the beginning of the movie and we see a hand for the 30th time in the movie as it turns on a switch turning on several sets of floodlights, bathing the immediate area surrounding Brenda, and we hear a scream in the distance as we return back to Alice, who is at the main cabin. Bill and Alice noticed the lights at the archery range had been on for a moment, and they also heard a scream off in the distance, so they decide to head out to investigate. They go to Brenda's cabin, and they find a bloody axe in her bed.
3: What
0: is going on? I guess that's a normal reaction given the circumstances. So then they head to Ned, Marcy, and Bacon's cabin, and obviously no one is home. Then they take a trip to the bathroom without any sign of life there, which now causes Alice's spidey senses to finally tingle. Bill, I think
3: we should call someone.
2: This is a junk on your brain.
3: I'm serious.
0: I really think we should call someone. Yeah, man. I gotta say, I'm on Team Alice with this one. So, next, they decide to head to the main office. The phone is dead, and the line has been cut. They show that. We see it. There have been other instances of really nice camera work throughout this movie, but I'm going to make a special mention here. I really like how they filmed this scene at the main office, and how they... Show how that um, wire has been cut. So points for cinematography. Points for writing too, as these two immediately head to the banjo truck. And more car issues. All right, never mind. I'll take those points back. Car issues twice in the same movie.
2: Why don't we just hike out of here? Just get out right now. Look, it's ten miles to the nearest crossroads. Steve will be back soon. We can use his jeep if we need to get help. Don't worry probably some stupid explanation for all this like what we'll be laughing about this
0: tomorrow I promise. we catch up with steve because of his car issues during his cop ride unfortunately for steve there was an accident in the other direction so he gets dropped off a little ways out uh, so he'll have to walk to camp
1: hello what's that
0: I'm going to go ahead and give the movie points for accounting for how long that it has taken Steve to get to camp, because it is really only a 12-mile hike, uh, you know, so by car, that's just doing some quick math off the top of my head. That would take an hour at 12 miles an hour, so. Oh,
1: hi. What are you doing on this mess?
0: You can tell in his voice and mannerisms that Steve is not concerned for his safety as he approaches this person, which goes in line with a few clues from early on in the movie and it fits with the ultimate conclusion to the movie. Some nice subtle hints as to the identity of the killer. Anyhow, we can cross Steve off the su- suspect list and add him to the killed in action one instead. Another POV shot. power to the entire camp has now been cut off we go back to our final two counselors which is alice and bill now and they are still relatively calm given everything that has been happening what do you think happened i don't know son of a bitch bill is going to go and check the generator alone The camera goes from steady to wobbly as the music creeps back in as Bill is checking on the generator. Luckily, the gas still works. Alice wakes up from her 30-second nap to make a pot of tea. Nervous, Alice decides to head out to the generator and check on Bill. Who the heck leaves a tea kettle and an open flame on like that? It's very unsafe. She have a death wish or something. Bill. A second callback Bill. to the archery range scene from earlier occurs and just got a reel and i also want you to remember about that second callback uh because it will come up in some of my commentary on the movie we've arrived to the final act with about 20 minutes left in the movie so let's get caught back up on things here quick uh alice is the only counselor left one of our suspects is dead which leaves ralph and pervy but nice driver guy that's, that's it now. So Alice locks herself inside the cabin. Personally, I would have cleared the cabin first, but to each their own. She may have just realized that error in her ways as she grabs a bat and then she slowly creeps on into the kitchen and that fucking tea is taking forever to heat up. Brenda's corpse gets tossed through the window right next to Alice, and a short bit later, she gets hope as Steve's Jeep arrives outside. Alice undoes the front door, and she runs out And she comes to a complete halt. <gasps> who the heck are you? I'm it. Well, I'm I'm Mrs. Voorhees, an old
1: friend of the Christies. Oh, you you no, I no no
0: A nice lady, Mrs. Voorhees, who we've never met, arrives. She's a friend of Steve's family. Thank God, Alice is going to be all right. It's all good for the
1: Christies. Oh, God. <gasps> what's going on here please help me get out of it's here. just this place and the storm that's why you're upset no,
3: no no they're all dead they're all dead all right,
1: all
0: right i'll go look
3: no no please don't leave me they'll kill you too
2: i'm not
1: afraid
0: wait why the hell did did her calming smile just it just drops as she walks off camera She walks into the cabin, and she sees Brenda's lifeless body on the floor.
1: What monster could have done this? Bill's out there! Oh, God, this place. Steve should never have opened this place again. There's been too much trouble here. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I was working the day that it happened, preparing meals. Here, I was the cook. Jason should have been watched every minute. He was...
2: He wasn't a very good swimmer. We can go now,
1: dear. I think we should wait for Mr. Christie. <laughs> That's not necessary.
0: Yeah, all right. You're scaring me a little bit, Miss Voorhees. You
1: see, Jason was my son.
0: This cannot be good. And today
1: is his birthday. Where's Mr. Christie? Oh, I couldn't let them open this place again. Could I? I mean,
0: maybe. Ms. Voorhees explains that her son drowned due to negligence from the camp counselors, and she takes out a knife, going after Alice. Alice fights back and escapes the cabin, coming across body after body like some sort of home alone trap. Alright, new prime suspect, Pamela Voorhees.
1: Away, mommy. Don't let her live. I won't, Jason. I
0: won't. Not. The fight for survival continues from location to location, and I've never noticed this before in this movie. But at one point, Alice gives Pamela a punch with the butt of the gun right to her groin. That cannot feel good.
1: Her virgin hang like sleeve of wizard.
0: Eventually, the fight gets taken to the beach, where Alice wins by decapitating Pamela with the infamous machete. Alice, for ultimate peace and safety's sake, takes off in this canoe, totally understandable, off into the water, and she falls asleep, waking up to this beautiful, just beautiful, I was looking for better words, but beautiful Saturday morning. Coaches the lake. Two officers get out to see what looks like her lifeless body in the middle of the lake in this canoe. Following up into the distance to wake her up, Alice wakes up to see that she will finally be safe. Only for Jason Voorhees to pop out of the water and drag her under Oh, wait, never mind She's at the hospital? Apparently she had not woken up in the canoe Question mark?
1: The boy is he dead,
2: too? Who? The boy, Jason. Jason? In the lake, the, the one who attacked me, the one who pulled me underneath the water.
1: Ma'am, we didn't find any boy.
0: the real question mark though did the water for her tea ever come to a boil what's your favorite scene dudes i had to think about this for a long time and i was close to admitting that i didn't have a favorite scene or going with the obviously most memorable moment in this movie, the Kevin Bacon kill. However, as I was going beat by beat over the movie, actually rereading my walkthrough, I got to the point where they are in the cabin killing the snake, and it's another Kevin Bacon moment. Every time that moment happens that Kevin Bacon, just out of nowhere, shouts, I'll flush it out, knocks over everything in his path, jumps over people, and fucking Yokozuna-style bonsai drops the bed. I can't help but get the biggest damn grin over my face. That moment is pure chaos and comedy, and I'd be surprised if that wasn't improvised, or at the very least, no one expected it to be so magical. Thank you, Kevin Bacon. You have once again proven why you are one of my heroes. That was totally dope. What do you say that we get down in technical, if you know what I mean? Throughout the entirety of this section of my review, I will be using audio from the commentary track of my DVD, which was put together by Peter Bracki, who was the author of Crystal Lake Memories. I'm quite positive I speak about which collection of DVDs that I own in my ranking of the franchise, If not there, it's in the review for Friday the 13th Part 6. I believe this DVD's commentary track is a mix of old audio clips as well as maybe director commentary specifically for this DVD. Regardless, it includes audio from a very wide range of folks. Hopefully, I've done a good job of giving proper credit to who's speaking. I know I don't always get that in there. Also, if you're a Friday the 13th geek or someone who is interested in the art of film, This commentary was overall quite interesting and definitely gets my recommendation. Let's start with the writing. I don't think that I'll be talking about the dialogue. Most of it is very natural. The basic structure and tone of the film is very taut and strong. They knew what they wanted to make, and as I spoke of in the beginning of my review, it will get mimicked for that reason. I could really compare my overall issues with the writing, In a similar manner to what I said about the movie The Woman in the Window recently. That can be heard in episode 4 of my Messin' with Media series. Basically, there were a lot of things that were done classically correctly. There were a lot of things that were, in a nutshell well done with the writing, but it tends to fall apart once you are served the whole meal. There seems to me to be a plethora of half-baked ideas that make it into the movie. I think this issue occurs for different reasons from those of The Woman in the Window. I feel my analysis wound up being very well supported when reading between the lines while listening to the commentary track. Primarily, that thought is, That this movie had a very loose script apart from the kills, the killer, and the final 15 to 20 movies minutes of the movie itself. So the following items of note aren't necessarily negative, but. I think these are examples of where some of the seepage from that loose script comes through. Stuff filmed that they figured an editor could implement in post to create maybe more red herrings. Actual thoughts of possible red herrings that, either, that they either had on set in the middle of filming or were once upon a time in the script but were just never realized later on in the script. Subtle callbacks to either help or distract from the identity of the killer and or classic payoffs. I am of the strong belief that this movie was largely shot on the fly, or at least in an impromptu fashion, knowing in general what they wanted to create, but not with any intention to create something we would still be talking about today. It was an inexpensive cash grab, and the filmmakers fully admit that. Let's get into these observations. There seems to be a focus, in general, with the raincoats used in the movie. Specifically, there seems to be a large focus on Steve's big yellow raincoat at the diner. The two arrows at the archery range? Think Ned's death. Annie being the first death as well as being the kitchen help. The same position that Mrs. Voorhees held when she was a counselor. The faucet not working? The lack of any real introduction to Jason and or Mrs. Voorhees, even though, as I noted during my walkthrough, they did hint at the identity of the killer, it's literally impossible to pick up the hints without knowing the ending, and knowing the ending tarnishes the rewatchability of the movie. They even have a woman's voice that lures Brenda out of her cabin, so the hints are there. The fact that they do give you the hints to exclude any of the known suspects And I'll include one of those examples in my last bit for this note, which is right now. I'll call it Jeep Things. They inform us that Steve is driving a jeep without showing the color of the jeep. When Annie is picked up, the jeep that picks her up is coming from the opposite direction that Steve would need to be heading if he was leaving camp. They reveal that Steve's jeep is the same color as the one that picked Annie up. However, it has a trailer attached. However, however... That trailer was not attached when he left camp, at least I think I double-checked that, and that's just sort of a double-negative situation. Then, when Mrs. Voorhees arrives, the Jeep doesn't have a trailer behind it, but once again, it's sort of half-baked as far as a misdirect goes because it's clearly going to be the killer without having to recognize that lack of trailer, since Steve's Jeep did break down and he was clearly just murdered moments prior. I could go into more detail, just like that, with the entire script with many more different things. The, in a nutshell, thing that I spoke about leading into this, the Mr. X and the hints, they fall apart as a storytelling device when you look at them on the whole. So i put a fair amount out there. I know I didn't fully bake everything I just spoke of. Let's tune into what the filmmakers actually had to say in regards to the writing. The writer Victor Miller is self admittedly not a horror fan because he's a big wussy. His words, not mine. I don't know the man. Here's Victor.
1: Because I have another confession to make. I never went to summer camp because I chickened out. I just, I was such a wuss. I gotta tell you, that I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to deal with all of that stuff. And so I never went to summer camp.
0: The fact that he had a fear of something so simple, going to summer camp, is what led to the heart of this franchise campfire tales and I think that's what makes it so accessible.
1: I saw the structure uh, very very simply and that was for me that was the structure and of course um, then as you look at it basically now from the campers point of view they have to watch themselves uh, uh, be thinned out one by one uh, but of course the, the key to that obviously is to keep everybody ignorant um, that's the, I mean the, the hardest job of all is to have uh, two people not know that everybody else is missing and uh, it's it really becomes kind of that um, architectural job of saying you know let's not make them look too stupid I Was writing it was this is a mother who was uh, taking care of her son who was long since dead of course but um, that she was avenging something that really really bad that had happened to him and so she basically had to take them where she could get them one by one until she got rid of all of them i mean that was that was clearly her goal
0: i felt that they actually did accomplish that pretty darn well
1: the function of crazy ralph in this in the screenplay friday the 13th is to set the tone for this horrible geographic area
0: yet another tone slash anxiety slash tension creating device the next two clips are going to be sean cunningham
3: initially you think well annie is the lead of the film actually she isn't she's killed you know 15 minutes into it
0: one of many misdirections in the movie yet again also helping to set the tone
2: we needed to have surprising uh but long attenuated moments that would have a moment of surprise in them and that was that was the goal rather than saying we have to have uh we have to have uh extreme gore we have to go all the way past the line we have to push the envelope we were trying to um um, see how long we could could maintain suspense i thought i think suspense was the goal more than um gross out
0: goal accomplished
2: we surely felt we wanted to have a A couple of, (laughs) you know, things. And Jason coming out of the lake at the end was uh, meant to be that, but we never, um, it took, really took a while to get that right. You know, if you tip it off, it just won't work. And so I tried to figure out how to make that moment really work best. For sure, I knew we had to, you know, the stories, the ghost story is over so you can turn on the light. So Dawn comes up and she's on this beautiful placid lake. And... And then I decided that I needed to, you know, make sure that the audience felt safe and that she was safe. And uh, and did that in two ways. One is I had some cops running along the shoreline in the background to create that sense of safety. The, it was shot very idyllically. And then Harry Manfredini laid the music out so that it just mellowed you out.
0: Masterfully done. And on that note, let's talk about the sound design right after I give writing a score. All in all, I think they accomplished their goal with this movie, and the writing seemed to me to be as flawed as it was well done. So I'm going to give the writing a 5.9 out of 10. Now let's talk about sound design. I don't think it was possible to create a better score for the movie. The timing of everything is spot on. The tone and the presence that it creates is there, of course the key, 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 ma, 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 done by harry manfredini the composer he killed it he killed it so let's hear a word from him really?
1: that's pretty spooky so i i des- what i what i did was I, it was just sort of like there was there was so much pov in this film of you know the my joke is it's the pov of the cameraman It was supposedly uh, Jason's POV, like, when Jason was there, we never saw him, or in this case, it turns out to be Betsy Palmer. But when the killer was watching, uh,
0: I, I, I wanted to create a presence so that it wasn't just, it was above and beyond the cameraman. My final thoughts on the score itself were that the score is very tight in the manner that there is one main theme for the killer, There was one main score tying the rest of the movie together, one that totes a straight and narrow line in unison with the script, getting us from point A to point B. And there's a beautiful piece at the end of the movie, which also served its purpose incredibly well. I didn't notice anything wonderful or terrible about the sound effects themselves, so weak to a point, I suppose. And I thought the sound mix was good. All in all, for the sound design... I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. And let's move on to acting. As a side note, which means that this does not have an impact on my score, this movie was supposed to be filmed much earlier than it was, in the spring and the summer. But instead, it was filmed maybe late summer, but mostly during the fall and into the late fall in New Jersey, which means that the temperatures, and definitely the temperatures of the water, went from cold to colder during filming. I am of the belief that, in part, the filmmakers determined the order in which people die in this movie based upon their acting chops. I could say they hired them for the specific roles based upon their acting chops, but some of my notes on the writing should help to make more sense of that belief that they basically killed the poorest actors off first. I'm sure the reality of the matter is that it's a bit of both. Here's another clip from Peter.
3: The about the casting process is at the time, um, it was a little unusual in that the film was um, being cast in based out of New York. Um, so Barry Moss and Julie Hughes of TNI Casting at the time... Really, we're pulling from a theater background more than a film background.
0: For better or worse, once realized, you can feel that in this movie. Especially when you combine that information with the director's history in theater and his self-proclaimed comfort with that type of actor. That theatrical style of acting is even in Betsy Palmer's performance. Furthermore...
3: Then with Adrian King, um, that was a case of uh, opening... They had a huge casting call with, I think, over a thousand girls. and she had, no, she had no SAG card um, and really no previous acting experience except for a cameo in Saturday Night Fever. So it was also very unusual for the time is that they were able to get a lead girl who had, really had no experience whatsoever.
0: That's the actress for the character Alice. And once again, when you combine this bit of information with a clip that it, you may have heard by now, you have not heard it yet, about the order that this movie was filmed in, it's going to be one of the last two clips of this episode. It really makes sense as to why I felt, not only for her, that the acting gets better as the movie goes along. You also may have noticed in my walkthrough a couple of comments that I make about the camaraderie of the counselors as it grows as the movie goes along during the second act, really, which is very natural to how things would go in the real world. This is because many of the actors' relationships were really growing in real life, Many of them were living at the camp during filming with each other, just hanging out during their downtime. And since this movie was filmed more chronologically than a lot of movies, you can sense that in the movie. I just gave away the final note. As my first note alluded to for this section, I think the acting, for the most part, tends to get better as the movie goes along. There are many moments and a few actors who come across as poor actors. There are moments for just about everyone that are, at the most, average performances. The fight at the beach is laughably poor. I'm not sold on Betsy Palmer's performance, although there are moments where it is great and very believable. I felt Betsy came across as someone portraying someone who is insane, less so than someone who has actually gone mad. However, both actresses' performances in the third act, despite the fight at the beach, are primarily what pushes the score up past a 5. So, I'm going to give acting a 5.1 out of 10. Some of the most convincing performances were actually from non-characters who had like one or two lines in total in the movie. Production design. Tom Savini is the makeup and effects artist, and he does a great job and the effects darn near hold up on today's screens. In fact, many still do hold up. I also appreciate the fact that none of it is really off-putting. It doesn't make you want to look away from the screen. You can hear more on that in the commentary track. One observation I'm directly lifting lifting, from, I'm pretty sure it's Peter Brackey himself who said it, is that there is only a total of, 45 to 46 seconds of gore in the entire film or i might have wrote that wrong and it's 45 seconds to a minute but either way less than a minute an honorable mention to the effects going to the kevin bacon kill the movie was shot on location on the east coast at a real camp you should know i love that and it really helps this movie
3: it's kind of ironic that a boy scout summer camp um would be using this film to promote it as like a tourist attraction and, you know as a way to get kids to come to this camp
0: there is an odd attention to some details through the production design as well as through the cinematography and the writing that don't go anywhere half-baked like the faucet that didn't work for marcy she fixes it and then later brenda comes in and she tries to use a different sink which doesn't work And then she uses the one that Marcy fixed. And here's possibly another super subtle and useless bit in this movie. My first note when watching the movie for the walkthrough portion mentioned that the name of the cabin in the first POV shot as the killer walks into that cabin. It's the wolf cabin. Each cabin has a name. That's typical. Typical. I ended up just deleting that note because it meant nothing to the movie, even though it really appeared to be like front and center on the screen for a moment during that scene. The characters' designs are all very natural. I would be quite surprised if there was a wardrobe department in this movie, but that is exactly what the movie needed anyways. There is a very classic use of the color red implemented in the film. All in all, I really liked the production design and the production crew went to somewhat extreme lengths in order to help sell June weather since they filmed so late. That care for detail comes through in the movie. I'm giving it production design an 8 out of 10. And to cinematography. It is possible that the raincoats were not a writing issue and were simply here for aesthetics. In fact, The lack of putting clothes on prior to going out in the rain in a couple of scenes may point to a defense for that critique. The reason being, this movie is very dark and colorless overall except for those brilliant pops of color that most often appear with the use of the counselor's raincoats. It's no surprise that Sean Cunningham makes the following remarks when talking on the use of the POV shots in the movie.
2: And that by switching to that point of view, um, you can or you used to be able to uh, create a certain kind of anxiety because the camera is in the wrong place and it's telling you non-verbally that there's somebody else possibly present. Um, And with that, um, I think it's one of the many devices that we used um, to try to increase the tension.
0: And he isn't joking when he says many. There was a good amount of creative camera work that I did not write down except for, I believe, two things that I brought up in my walkthrough. And they also seemingly nailed the simple things that one learns in film school, which obviously helps a lot. Ultimately, my biggest criticism for the cinematography was that there may have been too much... Point of view used. So I'm going to give the cinematography a 7.5 out of 10. You know, this is a note that I just thought about too. If Harry Manfredini doesn't do what he did with the POV shots, this movie really doesn't work because then there's no presence. You think of a movie like Halloween, even though you didn't see the killer, there parts of the killer were always on the screen. Here, they, it's just the camera. It's the man behind the camera instead of the man behind the mask. mask. Next up is going to be, how does this movie compare to similar movies by genre? At the heart of it, the first Friday the 13th is hardly a slasher flick, but it is still one. And it's hardly a whodunit. Slash mystery, even though it really ultimately is one. But I think, despite one major writing flaw for the whodunit plot, the movie was what the film creators wanted. It does not compare with the psychos of the world. I don't even think it compares with Halloween, which is most directly ripped off of. We know that. That was the sole point of reference for the writer. However, marketing wise, they may have been geniuses. In this instance, at least. When comparing it to modern film, the movie struggles to keep up on a lot of levels. Partially, that isn't the filmmaker's fault, though, because everyone already knows the ending before seeing the movie due to the franchise's lasting popularity in the mainstream. I'm going to play a clip about that major writing flaw. Keep in mind, some of that marketing geniuses was the hiring of Betsy Palmer.
3: Well, the film missed its best bet with Betsy Palmer in the sense that When she finally appears on screen, she's so rather butch and mannish that it sort of destroys her girl-next-door quality. Some people felt it might have been scarier if, you know, when she shows up, she's just nice apple-pile woman. You think, how on earth could this woman be a killer? But now in the film, when she shows up, the minute she appears on screen, you're like, oh, it's the killer because she's so, you know, completely, obviously psychotic at that point.
0: Their hands were tied with this decision because... There needs to be some immediate level of believability that this petite woman, Mrs. Voorhees, could have hauled, tossed, and hung these dead bodies all over camp. Personally, I prefer this movie as a slasher flick. I think the who done is massively mishandled by not introducing any of that story for us to actually be able to solve the story along with the fact that you really don't realize it's a whodunit until it's too late into the movie. With all that in mind, and not giving it a break for things beyond the movie's control, i.e. everyone knowing the ending, I'm going to sadly give it a 4 out of 10 for the horror-slash-mystery genre. And lastly is gonna be my total enjoyment factor rating. Watching this movie, critically, for the first time, I enjoyed it the most that I ever have probably somewhere in the high six range. Watching the movie every other time in my life, it's a bit boring and the acting can really turn you off. Normally, it's been somewhere around a low to mid four for me. So, I'll meet somewhere in the middle and I'm going to say that I enjoy this movie pretty averagely. 5.05 out of 10. Let's recap those scores, I gave writing a 5.9 out of 10, sound design an 8 out of 10, acting a 5.1 out of 10, production design an 8 out of 10, cinematography a 7.5 out of 10, in comparison to all horror slash mystery a 4 out of 10, and my total enjoyment factor rating was a 5.05 out of 10 which comes to an average slash my official podcast score for Friday the 13th Part one of a 6.221 out of 10. So 6.2. In case I don't think I've ever explained it, I I keep track up to three digits uh, for tiebreaker reasons. It's time for some totally tubular facts. I'm going to skim through this portion as quickly as I can. There is just so, so much already out there. I can't add much to myself, but... I hope that I'm adding a little bit of value here to anyone who's heard some of these interesting facts. Since I've teased it, the snake was real. They actually really killed that very snake that we see as it dies on screen. If you recall, I felt that scene had some of the best acting in the entire film, and it could be because some of those reactions are very real. The film made on a budget of $550,000. I'm sure that does not go on... I mean, that's not even the whole franchise or merchandise sales. The MPAA allowed a fair amount of gore to make it into the film, at least in that day and age. I think Sean stated there was only one change he actually had to make. I know he said he got through what he wanted, which you will not hear another director say for a long time after this movie. Studios would go on to reference this movie as to why they felt certain scenes of their own film should be allowed. Sean admits that the MPAA may have given him a bit of a freebie, and that the MPAA almost surely came to regret that freebie. Thus, Sean felt that he may have had an extra tough time with them down the road. He also stated that that could have been the truth for everyone else, too, and not just him. I think it's possible that both of Sean's observations were true. It's a well-known fact that all of the glimpses of the killer are actually of a man. Here is Betsy Palmer on that.
2: It's always a man's foot and a man's trousers and everything, because it was Tommy Savini's assistant, a young Greek boy, who who uh, did me all through the film. I'm there the last 15 minutes of even that. I guess, I don't know whether it was that they wanted a name, I suppose. Well, I did have a name, no, no, because of TV and all of that. The image always was,
1: especially when I would be doing show, uh, doing the Today show with uh, Dave Garraway and Jack LaSqually and all. And
0: I don't think I got into this as much as I wanted to, but... I know I talked some on it. Having such a petite individual as the killer in this movie was definitely an issue for the movie, but as Betsy alludes to, from a marketing standpoint, having her was huge and definitely was a big contributing factor to the success of this film. One thing that worked really, really well with this film
1: is we basically shot in continuity. The way it was shot was pretty much how it unfolded
3: if you read the screenplay, really the, the only sort of logic I think they're concerned with is the actual scare sequences. I think it's all about just kind of coming up with a sketchy sort of situation to get kids isolated and alone in a scary place. And the film's real focus is on those seven or eight key scare sequences.
0: I've made some reference by now to the commentary in that clip about the film and the order that it was shot in. I've also made reference to the second portion of that clip. I think both points become incredibly evident when studying this movie and should help to make further sense of a lot of what I said in much of my walkthrough and even in how my walkthrough came together. I always try to portray something, or some many things, with my walkthroughs beyond simply talking about each scene in the movie. My attempts are typically to go beyond just the surface of the movie. I believe this next clip is Peter Bracke speaking, and I'm going to let him finish his observation as I full-heartedly came to agree with this sentiment. So thank you for listening. This is how this review ends, with a continuation from the second portion of the last clip.
3: By one, people are picked off. It's very similar to Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians. Uh, Even in those films, the characters tend to be very sketchily drawn. Um, This isn't a character study. And I don't think anyone in this kind of film wants to see, wants to sit with characters for an hour and really become, you know, come to like them and love them and then watch them get killed. That would just be depressing. So you have to sort of just set up really basic archetypes that people can relate to and that you kind of like and root for, but that you don't like too much. Um, So while I I can understand the criticisms um, that it's poorly made, I don't think so. I think that both Sean Cunningham and Victor Muir knew very well what kind of film they were making. And they knew that, you know, they looked at Halloween, realized you have to create um, a basic setup, but you can't um, overdo it. And you can't, you know, this is, again, this isn't a big drama with big scenes and big emotional arcs. It's a, it's a popcorn movie. And so it's about the roller coaster ride. It's about setting up situations where you slowly go up the hill, you get to the top, you have that few seconds where you know the bad thing's gonna come, and then you drop off and you have that cathartic throw, which in this case, Or the gore shots, or or the payoffs. But you have to have that payoff. And you go back and you do it again. It's a it's a bunch of hills and valleys.